0: Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive.
1: Hi, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. Today, we are talking about the tax reform and how to apply that to your business and personal accounting. So I'm your host, Rachel Marshall, and I've got my co-host, Bruce Weiner with me. Good morning, Bruce.
0: Good morning, Rachel. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about this. Uh, This is the one thing I think that people, if they have a good uh, tax strategist, can bring value into their business. And uh, I'm really happy that we have Dustin here today to help us through these tax law changes. But I do want to uh, tell our listeners that um, really everybody's tax situation is different. And we'd like to tell you that um, anything we talk about today is not direct advice to the listener. You will have to actually talk to your own tax professional or actually contact Dustin, Um And he'd be glad to get you as a client and he can walk you through all the changes of the reform.
1: Absolutely. And thank you for that disclaimer, Bruce. And then also just helping us understand kind of the the differentiation between education and helping us to understand and bring clarity around something that can be fairly confusing as we're navigating all of these changes, but then also making sure that we have specific advice for you in your own situation as you are trying to apply this to your personal and business life. So yes, we do have Dustin Griffiths here. He was on the show a few weeks back, and we've brought him back on the show today to talk about tax reform. He's a tax strategist with Insight Tax and Accounting. Welcome, Dustin.
2: Thanks. Good to be with you, Rachel and Bruce. Awesome.
1: Awesome. Well, we have received from your office, Dustin, a series of emails on tax reform and kind of really outlining very well the changes between kind of delineating where the changes were with tax reform, what was happening before the change and what happened after the change. So, we're going to be using that as a guest blog from Insight Tax and we're kind of going to walk through several of those changes today. So, let's go ahead and jump right in. So, there was a lot of changes around the small business tax rates. We know that corporate tax rates went down, but what else do I need to think about in terms of small business tax rates as a whole and then how that might affect whether a C-Corp is the right entity for me.
2: That's a great, great question. Um, and that's one that we got a lot. Um, and before the tax uh, reform was finalized, it was actually one that we we were paying really close attention to. So, um, it's important to understand how, how different business entities are taxed, um, to start. So first we're going to start with, um, C-corporations. C-corporations are your major, very large corporations typically. What happens with them is that the business pays federal and state income tax. And then what happens is is that the owners, as they take dividends or or take salaries or whatever, as they're getting cash out of this C-corporation, they're going to pay tax on it at that time as well. So effectively, your income is being double taxed. So taxed once at the corporate level, once at the individual level. Um, Entities such as partnerships or S corporations or even sole proprietors, um, they're going to be treated as or or they're what are termed flow through entities. What that means is that typically um, every state's going to be a little bit different on if they subject it to a small amount of tax or not. But these entities do not pay federal income tax. What happens is the income that would otherwise be taxed is reported down to the owner's individual return and the owners pay tax on it individually. So in this case, no federal tax on the state side, only tax on the individual side. So that's why for the majority of small business, um, C corporations haven't historically made sense And these flow through entities like S corporations or partnerships have, have made a lot more sense. Well, now with the tax rate, the corporate tax rate being cut, um, really about 14% for the majority of it from 35 to 21, it's bringing up the question of are C corporations more viable now. Um, and the answer is of course, it depends. Uh, that seems to be the answer for a lot of things, but, um, on C-corporations, we're still looking at double taxation. So as a, for instance, let's say my company made um, $200,000 this year after all of my expenses. So that's my net income. And I take 100000 of that as salary. Well, that means $100,000 is left in, in the C-corporation and it's going to pay 21% on that. Then, in addition, when I take the remaining seventy nine thousand dollars out, I'm gonna pay tax on that again. You know, I'm if somebody's somebody's really running a, a, a good profitable business, you know, they're probably not gonna be in much that less than the fifteen percent tax bracket, in which case I'm paying twenty one percent federal tax in my C corporation, and then I'm gonna pay fifteen percent individual tax when I pull the rest of that cash out. So I'm still paying effectively 30, you know, somewhere in the 36% tax range on that income, which I'm, I mean, for an individual, you're not going to be getting into the 36% tax bracket till you're well over 400,000, you know, into that 400,000 range. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's still not in our mind. It's still not the most viable if you're just having one entity. Now, using a C corporation potentially in in addition to something like an S corporation, there might be strategy there that makes sense for individuals. But again, that's up to each each individual person and their tax situation.
0: Well, D- but Dustin, um, can you can you talk to the listeners about how easy it is to go back and forth if they if it is advantageous Cause there are some limitations there,
2: aren't are there not?
0: There there certainly are
2: limitations there. So um an an S corporation, which for for operating entities um are often going to be in in our minds some of the best. We really like S corporations and the tax advantages of them. Um, moving between an S corporation and a C corporation is is simply a filing with the IRS. The limit though, is that you can only elect to be treated something, you you can only elect to be treated differently every five years. So if I'm a C corporation, and I elect to be an S corporation, I'm now stuck as an S corporation for five years. It's not like I can Mm -hmm. leapfrog back and forth between tax types every year. Same thing is, you know, oftentimes, now, I'm not an attorney, but let, you know LLCs, let's talk a little bit about LLCs. They are not recognized by the IRS. What that means is that the IRS takes an LLC and they plug it into a tax type that they already know, sole proprietor, partnership, S-corp or C-corp. And the way that they plug that is based on how the entity is set up and what elections are made. So I was recently talking with a client and, um, They've been in business for a number of years. Uh, When they first got in business, their tax advisor at that time suggested they elect to be a C corporation. So they elected C corporation for their entity. As I've talked with them, it is not beneficial. They would have been much better off to be an S corporation, but they're stuck in that C corporation tax type for five years at the end of the five years, we'll elect out into a different tax type. But um, there is limitation there. And it's specifically that five-year limitation that we're looking at.
0: You know, you brought up a point that I think is most one of the most confusing things that I know that even people that have or just started out small businesses, they don't understand that LLC is not a, a tax, recognized tax uh, situation by the IRS. You have to then decide how you're going to be taxed, even if you have a corporation. It gets confusing because people think C-Corps are like an LLC. Uh, do you find that in your um, in your yep. business? <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's one of
2: the things that I'm always trying to make sure, especially when I first start talking with the clients, and, and one of the first questions is, hey, do you have a business? Oh, yeah, I'm an LLC. I always then have to ask the follow-up question, how is your LLC taxed? And I oftentimes get the question of, uh, as a business and, and, you know, it's right. It's just, it, it's very confusing there. And so again, the IRS doesn't recognize them, but they plug them into a tax type that they already understand. So that's where it's, that's where it's beneficial to consult with a, a tax advisor or, you know, a tax strategist, somebody who can make sure that your, whatever entity you have you've elected to be in the most tax advantageous entity type for taxes for you. So, um, on that one other thing, uh, cause I oftentimes get the, this question as well is let's say I have an LLC and I'm going to elect to tax as an S corporation. People oftentimes say, Oh, okay, well, do I need to go have my attorney change my docs and, and re-register and And the answer is no. An S corporation is literally, the S corporation doesn't exist legally. It is only a tax type. So if I went to an attorney and I told him, I want to be, I want to have an S corporation set up, he's going to set up an LLC or an incorporated business and then just elect to have that entity treated as an S corporation. So S corporations don't exist legally. LLCs don't exist in the tax world well we we try to marry together those two entities as much as we can and that's usually the best uh, one of the best tax types for individuals
1: so dustin just kind of to recap here so basically what you're saying is if somebody says i have a business that's not enough information for them to understand how their tax situation is going to be they need to understand am i being taxed as a c corp or as a flow through entity and then really thinking through just because you have a business doesn't mean you're in the corporate tax bracket. And if you're on that C-corp side, you will have that double taxation, which effectively raises your tax rate over that 21%. So 21% is just the corporate tax rate, but you're still going to have the personal tax on top of that. And so I'm hearing that that's a really important piece for somebody to be aware of if they're saying, well, I want to incorporate or become a business as opposed to just a sole proprietor. These are pieces that they're going to need to be aware of and thinking through.
2: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so sole proprietors, I'll just put a plug out there. Sole proprietors are probably some of the worst tax type. So um, definitely talk with your tax advisor, tax strategist about um, moving out of sole proprietorship, because that's usually not the most beneficial.
1: Yes. Okay. So now that we've talked about the difference between the C-Corp and the flow through entity. So, say I am that pass through entity. I'm either a partnership, I'm taxed as an S corp or as a sole proprietor, which I believe that's considered pass through as well. Is that correct? Correct.
2: Yes. Yep. So,
1: in any of those cases, it used to be that I would claim 100% of my business taxable income on my personal return. So, what changed for 2018?
2: Um, so the the main change and, you know, corporate tax rates, C corporation tax rates you know uh came down so much that the the lifeblood of the economy is small business in 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 our viewpoint, so the way that the new tax reform helped small business is that you can take a twenty percent deduction for your flow through income so very simplistically, if I have a hundred thousand dollars of flow through income, um, I'm not going to be taxed on a hundred, I'm only going to be taxed on eighty. So we get a nice deduction off the top, which is un, you know, non-taxable to the individual. There so are Dustin, some- Dustin, mm-hmm.
0: let me interrupt for a second, just to make sure everybody understands this. So after you have all your business expenses deducted from your revenue, that's the flow through income, and then 20% is deducted from that.
2: That is that that is our understanding. Thanks for that clarification, okay. Bruce. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. that. Um, there are going to be some limits on that, um, and the limits really come in based on the individual's earnings. Um, it's it's let's see what is it? I believe it's one hundred and fifty seven thousand five hundred for a single, or three hundred and fifteen thousand for a married couple. That you potentially begin to phase out of that twenty percent deduction. In addition, there's if there's limitations on if you're a service industry um, versus a manufacturing industry. There's then questions about what constitutes a service industry. I mean, it's it's going to become very specific to your individual situation once you get there. Um, and that 300, let's say you're married, that 315 cap, and whether you then meet. The other requirements just to still allow that, um, but it is a nice. It's it's twenty percent up until that point, and then some phase out from from there, or other calculations you have to take into account.
1: Okay. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about that. Is it clear at this point that if, say, you did make, um, you were a married couple and you made 500000 is it clear whether you still get the 20% deduction on the first 315000 and then not the deduction as it phases out above that?
2: So it doesn't work that way. Uh, well, so there's two things that you have to look for. One is, are you in a service, quote unquote, service industry? And two is, um, then it's, it's not necessarily, you get the 20% up to 315. And then it begins to phase out. It's once you're above that, it phases out the entire amount. Um, Okay, okay. So there, there are two things. And again, very specific. And, and there are, you know, as, as um, tax professionals, you know, we're, we're out researching the code. And if somebody doesn't quite let's say somebody is in a service and they're above that 315, it becomes really tough to get that 20% deduction. Well, maybe there's other ways you can structure your business or your uh, investment holdings or, or, you know, looking at your entire wealth standpoint, as it were, there might be other strategies you can implement to still allow yourself to get that deduction. And so um, there is strategy around that as well.
1: Okay. And then just for clarity's sake, a service based business, to my knowledge, would be anything that's providing a service. So, even financial services, probably CPAs as well. Is that correct?
2: That is. And there, so the the, um, list that very simply came out in the tax reform was uh, let's see, health, law, accounting, actuarial science, performing arts, consulting, athletics, financial services, and brokerage services. So it's okay. It's going to be you know some things like for instance accounting. Yeah, I'm I'm just kind of raked over the coals. So that's where
0: that's mm-hmm. where one of the
2: things we're specifically looking at is okay, how can we potentially structure this to to have this work better for us? And there are things thing. that you can do around that um, using other entities or or splitting out your business ventures that might might make it uh, so that you're not considered part of that service but it's otherwise it's pretty vague um it's i mean the this is kind of the end of the the new legislation as it's determining small or service business it says any trade or business where the principal asset is the reputation or, or skill of its employees or owners
1: interesting okay
2: now that's a pretty broad brush
1: uh-huh and,
2: and so it's going to be something you're going to want to speak specifically about what you were doing in your business with your with your tax strategist about.
1: Okay. And so just to be clear, the service based businesses was a um, exemption or somebody that's not able to take that twenty percent deduction, correct?
2: No. So they're still able to take them up to the three hundred and fifteen. But once you're getting above the phase out, there's another calculation. So let's say I'm a manufacturing entity. I build build furniture and and I make a million dollars after all of my other expenses. I still get a deduction, but it's based on a separate calculation that takes into account um, wages and assets and equity of the business. And that's what gives me my deduction, not just a straight 20%. Once for these service based industries, what we understand is that you get to the 315, you're still there, but then after your phase out, it is gone for you. There's no separate calculation for you.
1: Okay. Okay. Wow. So it definitely is going to be on a case by case basis as we're hearing that, but that gives us a little bit of uh, maybe questions to ask our tax strategist or to think about as we're structuring our business ventures going forward. So thank you for some of the nuances around that, Dustin. Yeah. So, so let's talk then about vehicle and asset purchases. So this is something that I know you guys hear all the time at the end of the year. Should I go buy a truck? Should I buy something for my business? So that's an additional expense and I can expense that, which means I'm not paying tax on that amount of money. So let's talk about when does it make sense to make those end of year purchases?
2: Okay. Great, great question. And I get that question probably more than I'd like to um, <laughs> under the, under the new legislation, it's actually more beneficial, so it, it makes a little more sense. But the first thing, and I think I talked about this in our, in our last podcast or, or discussion, was you should never buy a truck if you don't plan on buying a truck anyways. It does not make mm-hmm. sense for you to spend $50,000 on a truck to save $20,000 in taxes, let's say. You're still $30,000 worse off in your overall wealth And so we never want to, we never want to tell our clients, oh yeah, buy this just for a tax deduction because it makes zero sense. Now, if you're planning on buying that truck anyways, this is awesome. Let's, you know, let's see how we can fit this in. So um, the answer for, You know trucks or other equipment that you're purchasing for your business has to do and, and is going to be based around depreciation rules and what those rules do for you and what you can do with them um historically um there are there's three real types of depreciation rules that we would be looking at one is just regular depreciation and that's where for instance, a piece of equipment, I'd be writing that off over five years. So $5,000, I'd take $1,000 a year, very simplistically. Um, okay. A second type is called section 179. Section 179 is a special um, section of the tax code that allows you to effectively expense an asset or, or expense a piece of equipment right now. Section 179, is limited to business income. So if I, if I have $10,000 of business income, and I bought a $50,000 truck, I'd only be able to take section 179 on $10,000 to okay. get my business income down to zero. Anything over and above that I couldn't take. In addition, there's limits on section, excuse me, that's bonus depreciation. That was a different one. So section 179, also there are phase outs on that. So if you're buying, it it used to be more than a million dollars in assets. Now I believe it's, now I want to say it's 2 million in assets. You you actually phase out and you aren't allowed to take section 179. The third type of um, depreciation is called bonus depreciation. Before the tax reform, this was, this Bonus depreciation allowed you to expense up to fifty percent of the asset in the current year, but the asset had to be brand new to you. Now, this type of depreciation can create a loss. So, again, I have ten thousand dollars. I buy a fifty thousand dollar piece of equipment that's brand new to me. I could take twenty five right now and create a fifteen thousand dollar loss in my business. Um, The new legislation uh, for the next, I believe it's still 2025 says that bonus depreciation can be taken to a hundred percent and the asset can be new or used. So it really expanded the breadth of how bonus depreciation is going to apply. Um, and it can make a huge difference. I've got, I've got a client who right at the end of the year, um, purchased a, a large commercial building. Um, I want to say it was just over the 2 million mark. Well, with section 179 limits and, and bonus depreciation limits, and it wasn't new to him. He, he was gonna, there wasn't going to be a ton of deductions for him under the new legislation he gets to be able to take bonus depreciation on a fair amount of his building, a large portion of it. And it's going to end up uh, based on our initial projections. It's going to save him $200,000 in taxes. This, uh, wow, this new awesome. change in the bonus depreciation. So that's awesome. in, in terms of specifically, if we're going to talk vehicles, bonus depreciation applies to that truck you're going to buy. So if I bought a $50,000 truck, I can bonus depreciate all of that right now. Now there's going to be limits um, and specific rules based on the vehicle and how you can write it off over 6,000 pounds. You can take it all under 6,000 pounds. There's going to be limits based on that, but the limits now are a lot higher than they used to be, which is a nice thing. So as a, I always, I like to throw out this example. If somebody goes out and buys a, a quarter million dollar Ferrari, they don't get $250,000 as a tax write-off. It's very limited. Well, that still happens, but your limit's going to be higher. So if you're buying a Ferrari for your business, it's not really a great uh, tax savings. So I'll just put that plug for whoever's buying Ferraris.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So basically with the changes between Section 179 and bonus depreciation, you're saying now the limits are higher. You can take more of the deduction 100% 100% versus 50%, it can be new or used. I mean, new or, I don't know what the word is for that. Used. Okay. Used is a
2: great way to say it.
1: New or used. And can it still bring you a business loss?
2: Yes. Yeah, it okay. can. So, well, quick clarification. The bonus depreciation can. Okay. Section 179 still cannot. Okay. So, It becomes, you know, you should definitely, if you're buying assets, you should work with your, with your, um, accountants and tax strategists as to which, which form of depreciation are you going to take regular bonus or section 179.
1: All right. And that's a great understanding as well. So we're not taking all of them on the same asset. We're taking one or the other.
2: Yeah. And well, so there is, there is the ability to take all of them on one asset or you can take just one or just two or you know it's going to be some combination of it but again that's where the discussion needs to be had
1: all right and again the first part of the discussion did you actually need the truck in the first place is still extremely relevant there correct (laughs) awesome okay so um, let's move on to talk about business expense changes so we've had a lot of changes around the way you can deduct business expenses inside of your business. And so let's kind of start at the top. You guys talked about entertainment expenses. I know there's some big changes here. Um, go ahead and share what that used to look like and then what the guidelines are going forward.
2: Sure. So it used to be that that any expense, and specifically we'll talk entertainment, any entertainment expense expense expense. Um, that was used in, in the regular course of your trade or business was, was able to be deducted at 50%. Um, the IRS has now. Just for
1: clarification, this is if you, in the normal course of your business brought your employees or future client to a baseball game, right?
2: Yeah. Correct. Um, so, and, and I'm going to, because of some of the way that the changes happen, I'm going to take employees out of that, but I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to take clients to a baseball game or a basketball game or whatever the case may be. Um, that entertainment is now no longer deductible in its entirety. It is gone. Okay. Okay. Now, um, in Entertainment expenses when you're dealing with employees, now there's going to be a lot tighter limitations on that. Things like holiday parties. Holiday parties are still allowed um, from what we can tell. But it has to be, it has to be for the majority. Uh, it has to be for non-owners of the entity. Um, so for instance, okay. if I if I'm the only owner of my entity and I'm going to go throw myself a holiday party and go to a Utah jazz game out here in Utah, then I I can't deduct that still, even though it's a quote-unquote holiday party. Because I'm an owner and I'm the only one involved, that is not deductible. Now, if I've got 15 employees with me and um, I'm taking all of them and none of them are owners, and that's our holiday party, our understanding is that that is still deductible.
1: Okay. Okay. So there's going
2: to be, yeah, a lot tighter rules in there on uh, specifically with employees.
1: Okay, so tighter rules with employees and they can't be business owners. And then it sounds like as well, if you were using the entertainment expense for meetings with clients, that is gone. Um, that kind of goes hand in hand with meal expenses. So go ahead and let's talk about that as well. I know that it used to be if you did networking, went to a coffee or took a prospective client out to lunch, that could be a, a business deduction. And what's changed surrounding that?
2: Sure. So um, very similar to the entertainment deduction um, is that uh business meals are gonna be a lot more scrutinized by the IRS moving forward. Now, the business meal section is section 274, and section 274 is basically what is what is not allowed. It's gonna tell okay. you what is not allowed. Um,
0: okay.
2: Now, there uh, section E, part E of section 274 deals, m- Deals with um, this area of, of meals and 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 business meals in, in our aspect. So there's still some there's still some disagreement out there between accountants as to what is not uh, excluded or or what you can take and what you can't take. Um, okay. In our mind, this is going to be a really really scrutinized area for people moving forward. And so we're trying to, to frankly be, be clear on this. Um, and within this part E of subsection 274, it does not stipulate anywhere in there about meals with clients or prospective clients, in which case, in our minds, that is no longer deductible. Now, if you are if you have a um let's see let me the exact words i'm trying to think what they are if you are eating out with employees owners or agents of your or agents of your business those are still deductible and still deductible at 50 percent um so as long as again it's somebody that is doing work for your entity um that or is an owner of your entity, that's deductible. The caveat still does apply that if it's you and your spouse, and you're the only ones, even though you're shareholders together, um, if you're both owners, that is still a non-deductible meal. So um, watch out for that. Yeah, so go ahead. Well, I think you're going to ask a question, and then I'll get into my next part, which is still dealing with meals. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, so I was just going to say, so if you – wanted to again go out for networking and there was a networking fee um, in order to attend a particular meeting or you took somebody out to coffee in order to build a relationship and potentially in the future do business neither of those according to what your understanding is right now neither of those are going to be deductible at all is that am I hearing you correctly
2: almost so the part about going and getting a coffee yes if if networking fee now we're talking someplace, something different. Okay. If we're going to a networking event and we're paying to get into the event and food is provided. Now I'm treating that differently because I'm not paying for the food. I'm paying to get into the event. Okay. So it, again, there's going to be a lot of nuances around this and, and you should you know talk, talk with your tax advisor about where you're spending meals, what they are and and see if you can get them into certain deductions
1: okay all right well thank you for clarifying that so go ahead with what we're going to share as well
2: so then the next part is um historically meals provided on the business premises for the benefit of the employer is what they're called basically if i provide meals at my office so that my employees can stay and work and and they don't have to go out for lunch or whatnot that used to be taken at a hundred percent. That is now only taken at 50%.
1: Okay. So, and this is, this is, Hey, I need you guys to all stay late. I'm going to provide pizza. That's what that applies to you. Correct? Correct. Okay. So it used to be a hundred percent. Now you can deduct only 50. Correct. Okay. okay. All right. So lots of changes surrounding that. And again, In your specific business, you may have different situations than what we've brought up or addressed here as well. And just be aware that there's a lot of changes that you do want to talk with your tax strategist on specifically. So let's talk about transportation expenses. Um, In the guidelines that you guys had sent out, you said you can't deduct travel paid for employees. Is there anything you want to comment or clarify surrounding that?
2: Yeah, so this is, um, this is still going to be, now this is not if I send an employee to California to meet with a client, I'm, I'm not talking about something like that. I'm talking about uh, what has historically been called fringe benefits, like I provide a local bus pass to my employees so that they can ride the bus to work or you know the, the trains or the subways or whatever. Um, it might also be, you know, bicycling is specifically talked about. If I provide bicycling, you know, fees or, or reimbursements for my employees, those so, are does uh, a car allowance, car allowance. So to be honest, car allowances typically are not deductible anyways. Okay. Um, they're treated as compensation to the employee, to the extent that they were personally used. Now, if, if I'm, if I am a business owner. So not, not a lot changed in that area. And, and this is what I mean. Let's say, let's say Bruce, you had a car allowance for me, or, or I gave you a car allowance. You would still technically have to track how many of your miles were business and how many of your miles were personal. And the amount that was personal, that percentage of your car allowance would actually treated be treated as compensation to you. Got it. Um, so that hasn't really changed. That's still still the same because the IRS was still getting their personal, the personal use as compensation taxed on it. So not a lot changes there, but then you're talking about, I mean, the bigger thing there is, Oh, what's considered business mileage, you know, commuting miles, um, and, and those types of things. So there would be a separate discussion you'd want to have if you're getting a car allowance and how that's treated. But we're talking specifically, like mass transit type benefits that no that historically weren't taxable to your employees and were a deduction for you, those those are going away.
1: Okay, so used to be deductible, no longer. Um, Correct. Let's talk. You said um, with research and experimental costs, it looks like you have to amortize those over five years as opposed to um, more quickly. What tell tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. So this is going to be, I mean, it's not going to be a huge area for a lot of people, but before what you could do is you could deduct research costs in the year that they were uh, incurred. Um, and, or you could depreciate them. there were credits involved and, and whatnot. The IRS has just come out and said, you know what, it's just five year amortized expense. Okay. So it really kind of simplified and took out a lot of that, um, unknown of, of how to treat things for research. Expenses.
1: Okay. Okay. Sometimes simpler is better, even if uh, yes. it means that we don't get to deduct as much. So at least it's more clear on those guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um. So then yep. was there something that you were going to ask Bruce? No. Okay. Uh, okay. So with business interest, you used to be able to expense hundred percent of business interest. What changed and for whom?
2: So, um, the business interest is, is not going to apply to a lot of, a lot of small business. Um, well, not, not a lot, I guess a fair amount. It's still deductible in its entirety for up to 25 million in revenue. So if I have, if I have 24 million in revenue, I still get to deduct hundred percent of my interest costs, okay. Um, over 25 million. That's when there are some limitations that are going to be put in there, um, and so if you know if if your business is that large and you're doing that, you want to make sure that you have that discussion with uh, with your accountants or tax strategists to make sure that you understand that. And you, frankly, you might look at financing your business a different way if that's the case.
1: Okay. All right. So let's talk a little bit about real estate. Um, If you are in real estate as an investor, there used to be some significant advantages with things like 1031 exchanges. Um, Let's talk about that, the like kind exchange, and then also depreciation definition for improvement expenses. So what's changed with real estate?
2: Sure. So there were... um, A couple of things. Um, One is there's going to be different tax um, outcomes for people that are flipping properties versus people or or versus buying and holding properties. Um, The IRS has always treated the flipping of properties as an ordinary business, meaning that it's whatever you're purchasing is treated as inventory. And you technically don't get to deduct that until you, um, sell the property.
0: Okay.
2: There, there's, there are some changes actually in that, um, based on, so there were some changes to inventory. Um, and so talk with your, talk with your tax strategist as specifically if you're flipping properties about in, about the new inventory rules, but Historically, it was you couldn't deduct so I buy a house for a hundred thousand I put fifty thousand into it and i'm going to sell it for two hundred thousand well i couldn't deduct the hundred thousand or the fifty thousand until I sold the property for two hundred so now there's going to be some changes in there also um the so that's I guess that's flipping properties. If we're talking now buying and holding long term, the changes are is, is that there used to be, I want to say it was three, there might have been four, I'm trying to pull it off my brain, but three or four categories for improvements. And those categories then determined how you had to depreciate it, uh, which of the depreciation rules you could apply, section 179 or bonus or those. Um, so there were quite a few different depreciation rules for improvements. The IRS said, we're gonna scrap all of them and there's only now one one depreciation uh, type for improvements. It's still a 15 year property or 15 year depreciation cycle, but the, uh, like for instance, bonus depreciation does apply and you can use bonus depreciation on uh, improvement costs, which is nice. So there's there are some nice things that happen that allow you to, again, continue to accelerate or take those depreciation costs early on.
1: Okay. So you're saying that we are able to depreciate more quickly than in the past. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So that's good then. So for buy and hold um, rental real estate, then you're able to more quickly depreciate than in the past. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So you're able to get, and and really what that comes down to is you're able to get the tax value out of your property quicker. Mm
1: -hmm, Okay. The
2: tax savings. Okay.
1: Okay. And then 1031, let's talk about mm -hmm. 1031 exchange as well.
2: So there was some changes to 1031. If you're specifically in real estate, they're not going to affect you. Uh, Historically, 1031 exchanges were allowed for any asset. So if I, to be honest, if I had a, um, if i had a vehicle i could technically 1031 that business vehicle into another business vehicle and when you say
1: 1031 just for the clarification of the audience so this means you sell that one asset you take the gain you're not taxed on the gain if you invest that back into a like asset correct
2: correct correct thank you um yeah it's like 1031s are also called like kind exchanges so again a business car for a business car. A partnership, investments in a partnership for other investments in a partnership.
1: Okay. So like
2: there was a pretty broad range of what 1031 or like kind exchanges could apply to. The IRS has come out and said we're only going to apply the 1031 like kind exchange rules to real property. So it is strictly and and definition of real property is Land or something that is permanently fixed to land, so land or buildings is okay. what it comes down to.
1: So no longer for the partnership that you just mentioned or the vehicle, correct?
2: Yep, correct. So if we're talking, you we're investing in real estate, great. It's it's not much of a change, um, and there is, I mean, there's going to be strategy in ten thirty one exchanges and how you execute those and. And part of that's going to be dependent upon your long-term goals and, and, and items like that. So make sure you're talking, if if you're talk or if you're looking at 1031 exchanges, you, you should be having frequent discussions with your uh, uh, accountants and tax advisors about those things.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's move quickly into just talking about some of the overview of the individual tax return. I know that we saw a reduction in most tax brackets for everyone overall on the individual tax return side. Um, the standard deduction grew tremendously and a lot of the itemized deductions went away as a whole big picture. Go ahead and share your perspective on that. And then what are some of the main things to be aware of as we're having changes to our individual taxes?
2: Sure, so it, it's, it's gonna be really interesting to see how this plays out with all of the individuals and, and different income ranges to see who really benefits and who doesn't. But here are kind of some of the highlights, I guess. Um, like you mentioned, Rachel, the majority of tax brackets decreased by 2%. Some were actually only 1%, some were 4%. So the, it's, it's a range, but 2% is kind of overall. Um, The standard deduction. So the IRS allows an an individual or a couple to take the better of the standard deduction or itemized deductions as a tax deduction on their return. Um, Things that make up itemized deductions are mortgage interest and property tax and state taxes and charitable donations, those types of items. Um, Historically, or I Even, let's use 2017, the standard deduction for a married couple was 12700 In 2018, the standard deduction is going to be 24000 so it almost doubled. Um, same thing happened with individuals as well as head of household filings, um, so the standard deduction increased significantly.
1: So Dustin, now, just a question on that. So I've heard many people say then, so essentially what it did is it made more of your taxable income deductible, which then simplified taxes on the individual side, making it so that you did not have to itemize in order to capture a greater amount of deductions. Is that?
2: that that's, yeah, you could say it that way. Now, um, so if you have itemized deductions more than 24,000, it does not help you at all. As a matter of fact, the tax reform hurts you a little bit and here's why. Okay. So if I had, let's say I have itemized deductions of 25,000 and then I have uh, me and my wife and my two kids. Um, I get exemptions. Historically, I've gotten exemptions, about $4,000 a piece for me and my wife, and my two boys. So that was another 16,000 that I got. So I really was getting 41,000 of deductions. Now, exemptions are gone in their entirety. So looking to 2018, if I still have $25,000 in itemized deductions, I'm still going to itemize, but I no longer have my exemption. So rather than getting 41,000 of deductions, I'm really only getting 25. So those people, those people that were pushing up against that you know, pushing around the 20 to 24 or above itemized deductions, this doesn't help them at all. This this part of the reform actually potentially can hurt them. Now there are other things that are taken into account that help them, like the 20% deduction for business income and and some other things that we're going to talk about here in just a second. But um, it, it's going to make a difference and and – It might potentially hurt people, Um, especially, you know, if you have quite a few kids, you know, if you have three or four kids, yeah, you're probably going to feel a little bit of a hit in this section of the new tax reform. Now, what did happen as well is that um, to kind of offset that, I was talking specifically if you had kids to offset the child tax credit did get raised. So before it was a uh, $1,000 per child up until they're 17, um, that is now increased to $2,000 per child. In addition- but D- hey, Dustin? Yeah. But isn't there a phase out for the AGI on that? There was, and that phase out was, uh, it started at I think 125000 before. Now, mm-hmm. that phase-out doesn't start, and I want to say the phase-out doesn't end until 400000 So, if you're making less than oh, 400000 okay. a year, you're not going to get all 2000 per child, but you're going to get something of it. So, that's it, that's kind of one of the ways that the IRS has offset losing the exemptions. They said, oh, if you have kids, we'll, we'll allow you to potentially get more for your kids.
0: Right, and this is a hard thing to explain over a... Um, a an audio yeah. broadcast, but uh, c- tax credits in general are better than deductions because they're one for one, correct? Yeah, so a tax
2: deduction only saves you whatever your effective tax rate is. So let's say I'm in the 25% tax bracket, if I spend a dollar, I save 25 cents in tax. A tax credit is I owe a dollar in tax, I get a dollar in a credit, which means I owe nothing. So there is, thank you for that clarification, Bruce. Yeah. So that that
0: makes sense. Then if you lose $4,000 of exemptions for your child and you're in a 25% tax bracket, you would have lost a thousand dollars of additional taxes that you're going to have to pay Mm -hmm. now. But now because you
2: get a credit, uh, it's basically a zero sum. Yeah. Yeah. For, and and for a fair amount of people, that's going to be the case or even it's actually going to be better for them. So again, back to the area, let's say that I had um 25,000 of itemized and then 16,000 in deductions. Well, now that 16 goes away. Well, but I also, if I'm, let's say I'm not phasing out at all, I just got $4,000 in tax credits for my, for my two boys. Well, that more right. than offsets the 8000 of quote-unquote deductions that I got for the 4000 in tax credits that I'm right. getting. Right. So there's going to be a change there. Um, quick things on itemized deductions is um, there's been a section, if, if people look at their itemized deduction form, there's a, there's a section that's it's called miscellaneous itemized deductions. They've been subject to 2% of somebody's income. Those, those are gone. Those are going to be things like unreimbursed employee expenses, um, safe deposit box fees, tax preparation fees. Those things are no longer deductible. Um, so if you are getting employee reimbursement or you, you have un, unreimbursed employee expenses, so you're doing something for your employer and they're not reimbursing you, start pushing your employer to reimburse you so you get that cash back. Um, the mortgage interest deduction. Mortgage interest has, has historically been deductible on the first million dollars of a mortgage. Now that drops to 750000 um, So if you have a million, if you have, let's say, an $800,000 mortgage before the tax reform, you're grandfathered in, and so you still get that. But any new mortgages over 750, you only get to take the mortgage interest on the first 750000 of the mortgage. So there becomes, again, if I have an $800,000 mortgage, I actually have to do a, an additional calculation to find out how much of my mortgage interest is actually deductible.
1: So it's not true, then, I know we were talking about this a little bit before the show today. So it's not true that mortgage interest deduction went away. It just depends on how much you can take based on the um, the value of your house.
2: Yeah, so clarification, not the value of your house, but how much your mortgage is. So if I have a million dollar home, but I only took a $700,000 mortgage on that, I can still deduct 100% of my mortgage interest because the loan itself is less than 750. So that's what we're looking at.
1: Yeah, okay. so um, thank you for that.
2: Home equity line of credits, that the interest on home equity um, lines, no longer deductible. So um, watch out for that. In that case, it, it, the, the question of taking out a home equity line or refinancing, you know, that, that makes us look at that even more. Um, you know, cost of refinancing versus what's the tax deductible of the interest and how much tax am I saving? And, you know, it becomes more of a, a, a real thing you have to look at. So um, last one, which is kind of a big one on the itemized deductions is what we call the SALT taxes, state and local tax is what it stands for. Okay. Um, so that's going to be things like property tax or your, your state income taxes paid. That is now limited to ten thousand dollars total between all of them. So before, if you're a fairly large uh, earner in terms of taxes and you're paying fifteen thousand dollars in state taxes and your more or your property tax was two thousand, so you had seventeen thousand total. Well, you only get ten of it now. So no longer you, you, that got limited to ten thousand.
1: Okay okay and uh, I believe that you mentioned something as well in the um, post that we'll share as well with the show notes that um, one of the the techniques to get around that would be to be able to prepay state and local taxes I think just for um, 2017 going into 2018 which is now over
2: yeah so it just I mean so it depends on how much you have and and what you have going on but for the most part that That quote-unquote strategy of prepaying your state tax, it's not going to give you near the bang for your buck like it used to.
1: Right. Okay. I just wanted to clarify that.
2: Um, Medical expenses, uh, you know, Obamacare or the health care reform uh, increased that limit to 10% of your adjusted gross income. Now it's going to be back down to 7.5%. In addition, the penalty for not having health insurance is still in place for 2018, but 2019 and moving forward, the penalty was reduced to zero if you didn't have health insurance or health coverage. So um, that got changed as well. There's a there's a number of other things, you know, alimony, moving expenses, um, education savings plans. Uh, there's so there there are a number of things that are also that got changed. So if you're you know review your situation with your tax strategist to make sure that that something didn't change for you.
1: Absolutely and thank you for talking through several of those and I know that there's even more that we have not gotten to as well today but this is a really good overview of what to think through as it applies to you specifically in your tax situation and where you may have a simplification of your taxes and where it might become more complicated, where you might have some opportunities to save in tax and where you might potentially be paying more. And so, this is really a very good reason to have a tax strategist who's not just looking retroactively at your taxes at the end of the year and saying, well, here's what you did and here's your tax bill, but really being proactive and looking forward and saying, how can we make sure that we strategize best to help you pay the minimum tax even with all of these changes? And so I just want to appreciate you, Dustin, and your team at Insight for being on that proactive um, ahead of the curve perspective and really helping to bring that education out there so that we can proactively Limit tax going forward. And so I just want to um, make sure that we help our clients and anyone who's listening to the podcast to understand and recognize the value of having a tax strategist in your financial wheelhouse to help you make sure that you have that tax strategy lining up with your wealth strategy and making sure that you don't pay any more than you need to in taxes so that you can keep and control as much of that money as possible and move that forward into the future and get that money working for you. So Um, Dustin, thank you so much for being with us today on the show. I really appreciate you spending the time to provide the education.
2: You're welcome. You're welcome. And, and I know, I mean, we just tried to summarize 11 or just, it's about 1100 pages, I think, um, of new tax reform into a, uh, what are we going on about 40 minutes, maybe 45. And so it's, there's a lot going on. If you. If you aren't just a W-2 employee and that's all you have, you should probably be looking to talk to somebody about potential changes. So um, I appreciate you having me on. I always, I always enjoy sharing and we're all about sticking it to the IRS if we can and, and, and helping people pay the, the least amount of taxes legally possible.
1: Absolutely. And uh, I just appreciate your perspective. And I appreciate you sharing with our audience today. If you are interested in talking with Dustin Griffiths or the team at Insight, you can reach out to us at hello at com, and we can refer you over. You also can reach out directly to the Insight tax team. And Dustin, what's the best way for somebody who's listening to this podcast who wants to get in touch with you? What's the best way for them to do that?
2: Um, so you can do it uh, really one of three ways. You mentioned one, reach out to to Rachel or Bruce or their team and, and they can put you in touch with us. You can also email me directly if you want. My email is Dustin, D-U-S-T-I-N, at insighttax.com and that's spelled I-N-C-I-T-E-T-A-X. Um, Or you can go to our webpage at insighttax.com. There'll be a contact us us section. You can put in your information and we'll make sure one of our team members reaches out to you.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'll make sure that that is in the show notes as we share this podcast as well with our listeners and our audience. And in closing, I just want to again say thank you, Dustin, for being here. Thank you to our audience for your time and for spending the valuable quality time to educate yourself so that you can be ahead of that curve and really be able to make the most empowering best financial decisions for yourself today and in the future. And in closing, I want to say success leaves clues so follow the successful few not the crowd and leave a life and business that you love to learn how high-performing entrepreneurs 10x or more returns on liquid capital without giving up quick access to cash go to themoneyadvantage.com forward slash liquid capital to get the unfair advantage your 20-minute easy to read guide on maximizing your savings